Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This Ocean Allison podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed to my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com slash oceanallison. And for those that haven't, visit patreon.com slash oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. And now to episode 47 of Ocean Allison podcast. This week's Ocean Advocate is Shannon Switzer Swanson. Shannon is an ocean scientist, photojournalist, and conservationist, recently honored as one of National Geographic's 2017 Adventures of the Year. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, very excited to have you on the Ocean Allison podcast today and to share your story with not only myself, but listeners. So listeners, to give you a little bit of background on how Shannon is joining us today on the podcast... Um, this is a scenario where I have never met my podcast guest today. So Shannon and I have never met in person and we don't, we didn't really actually even have any contact before this, even online. I really just reached out to her kind of blindly and, and asked her to be on the show. Um, but the funny thing is that we actually have a lot of commonalities and mutual interests. So I think that's possibly why I reached out and was so interested in having her on the show. Um, we both love surfing. We are both really dedicated to communicating ocean science and conservation topics. And she grew up in San Diego and I now live in San Diego. So we have a lot of things in common going on. So I think it's going to make for a really great conversation today. So Shannon, I want to talk first about curiosity. So this is something that I've kind of seen a lot in your presence online that you talk about is curiosity. Like I mentioned, you grew up in San Diego and, you know, your childhood was really centered around the outdoors and kind of more specifically the ocean with surfing and all types of water activities. Do you think that this is really where your curiosity for nature came from? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think definitely having space to explore, explore in nature when I was young, I would imagine created some innate curiosity in me. And I think a lot of people who spend time in the outdoors would probably identify themselves as people who have this extra dose of curiosity um, that kind of drives them to want to understand these processes that they're seeing and getting to interact with. So yeah, I think that being able to specifically get out and surf, as you mentioned, we both enjoy surfing, and just seeing all the connections when you're in the water not only getting to interact with the wave itself, but when dolphins come by or as pelicans are dive bombing and picking up, you know, scooping up fish uh, and just wanting to know more about how all of those elements are interacting. I think that definitely was a, an original source of that curiosity. Okay, so you took that curiosity and, you know, after your undergraduate degree, you've gone on to do some amazing research and some really cool places all over the world from Uganda to the Seychelles to Cuba and even beyond that, which we're going to talk about a bit later. But I think what really sets you apart is that you weren't just doing research and diving into that world, but you were also really diving into the world of photography and photojournalism. What inspired you and, and continues to inspire you in terms of 
using photography as a means of sharing your research story? Yeah, that's a great question. So I did my undergrad at UC Santa Barbara, and I studied biological sciences and environmental science. And I was a little bit disheartened at the end of my degree because I felt that it was very focused on these micro processes of the natural world that didn't really acknowledge the the human interaction side of that equation, which is what I was really interested in. And so I found that outlet in photography during my senior year of undergrad. I got old underwater housing and began taking pictures of uh, my friends surfing, uh, the local marine life around Isla Vista in the kelp forests, and just really enjoyed that that process. And so when I graduated, um, I had a really rare opportunity, uh, incredible opportunity to go on a six month sailing expedition from San Diego to Costa Rica with Captain Liz Clark, who has been sailing around the world and landed in Tahiti. She's been there for about nine years now. But during that trip, I was sort of the unofficial photographer for the first six months. And that really uh, that experience and just having that space and time to really focus on my photography and in a situation where I was really documenting that human nature interaction uh, was really inspiring to me and really motivated me to continue honing the craft of of photography. I had always loved writing and so it was just photography was a really nice complement to that and I'm not a very technically great photographer. I'm not a gearhead. I don't <laughs> love you know carrying around five different camera bodies and all the lenses and and whatnot. I really like, I like to keep it as simple as possible, but I see photography um, just as a tool, you know, to tell compelling stories and to really share those stories of how the wild part of the world and the human part of the world interact, how that relationship can be healthier. And then in 2009, you actually became a Nat Geo Young Explorer, which is an amazing honor and opportunity. You've had a long relationship with Nat Geo, which, like I mentioned in the intro. But um, yeah, can you just kind of talk about the experience of becoming a Nat Geo Young Explorer and what that really meant for you in terms of giving you confidence as well as progressing your career? Yeah, absolutely. So after... After that experience um, on the sailboat, I made some connections through some research that I did in that you mentioned um, in Uganda and the Seychelles. I made some connections with some other like young up and coming um, photographers, writers, and explorers through a group known as the International League of Conservation Photographers. Quite a name, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a collection of an amazing group of photographers who have dedicated their lives to using photography to further conservation around the world. For a while, they had an emerging league for young kind of up and coming conservation photographers. And so through that organization, I met uh, a few other young photographers who had applied to the Young Explorer grant and who had done a project with through that grant. They were incredibly helpful, just really wonderful with supporting me as I developed an idea for my project. And I decided after all the work that I had done around the world for the few years prior to applying for the Young Explorer grant, that I really wanted to do something in my own backyard and in San Diego and really try to better understand the systems going on there. So Two of my close friends <laughs> nearly died from contracting a bacterial infection after um, surfing in polluted water, which is definitely 
something that struck me as odd and that's something that shouldn't be happening. And so I really wanted to better understand those processes of how the pollutants from land were accumulating and then running down to the coastline, emptying there and then affecting human health. So having the grant from National Geographic definitely helped give that project some structure. Um, it wasn't a particularly costly project because I was, you know, I was able to be at home, but those extra resources helped me to hire a pilot, for example, to take some aerial photography of uh, after large rainstorms of the pollution running off. And it gave me, it gave some formality to the project that really, for me, was something I've learned that I need with projects. And also just to have the support and to know, you know, the National Geographic validated it as a as a really interesting and worthwhile project meant a lot to me. And I don't think that it would have been as productive um, of a project for me had I not had that support. And as you mentioned, it sparked a lifelong, so thus far at least, um, relationship with the organization, with the society that I've found to be just a really incredible source of support. And what I was really surprised with was that they, it's pretty intimidating, right? I think everyone when, that's in this field when they're young thinks of National Geographic as the be-all, end-all, you know, of conservation, photography, and writing, and exploration. And so it was really intimidating to first meet everyone at the at the DC headquarters, but right away I realized that they're just such a welcoming family, and they, once you're kind of in the fold, they want so much for you to succeed, and um, have provided so many amazing opportunities since the Young Explorer grant. So I'm really, really grateful for their support. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and so I want to actually ask you a little bit more about the stormwater runoff project that you were doing um, with that Young Explorer grant, because obviously I live in San Diego now and stormwater runoff after rain events is still a really huge issue. I mean, we've been having record amounts of rain just actually in the last two months here in San Diego. It's been limiting my my um, access to the ocean as well as many others. And definitely, you know, those that don't know about it or those that say that they don't care about it, you know, still go in the water and it's a really big issue still. So I guess my question for you, having done this project, really going through and analyzing all the causes and the effects of this pollution stormwater runoff here in San Diego, what kind of solutions do you see as being possible to mitigate these occurrences that are happening? So that's a really great question as well. I A lot of what I did with that project was interview people who worked in NGOs, um, the San Diego River uh, Foundation, the San Diego Coastkeeper, and similar organizations that, are, that they really have dedicated their work to this cause. Something that's been really productive thus far is, I believe it's San Diego Coastkeeper that does monthly water quality monitoring. And so that just having that, that sound data and having a baseline and then understanding how storms affect the bacteria populations after, after a major runoff event, that is definitely kind of the first step of taking action that is founded in science and scientific data. The other thing that I was really struck by was kind of how far back we needed to go in the process. And what I mean by that is within the realm of, of city planning and how everything is laid out. A lot of the solutions that the leaders I spoke to mentioned were really redesigning and rethinking how urban spaces are designed so that the 
asphalt is more permeable so that rooftops are, you know, have either gardens or some sort of percolation system or permeable system and really rethinking those hard surfaces that really don't allow for filtration of nutrients before they end up in the, along the coastline. Um, and so I think how to implement those changes, I mean, that goes, you know, and when I say it goes back to the beginning, it's kind of, you know, uh, going into city hall, you know, and getting all those policies in place that will, that will allow for smart, um, sustainable development. Yeah, I think for me and diving into it more, you know, now having lived in San Diego for a while, it really seems as though we're making a lot of progress in terms of, you know, the data and being able to figure out why it's polluted and when it's polluted and trying to warn people about that. Um, I definitely think you're right, though, in that the city infrastructure is really where things really need to change. And that's, you know, great to identify that and difficult to make those changes. But yeah, it's great to get your perspective on it, having been able to, you know, really dive into the subject yourself. Yeah, I actually have one more thought as well. That's actually quite interesting because of where San Diego is situated and I think really critical. And that's what the Wild Coast Foundation uh, is based in Imperial Beach that's right next to the Tijuana River outlet. Um, that is one of the most polluted beaches in the, in the nation because of the, the sewage spills that happen really frequently. And those happen across, you know, on the other side of the border. And so that's a really interesting situation where Wild Coast has really focused on trying to improve communication and to develop relationships with um, the authorities in Mexico to really try to help prevent those spills that then really affect that southern part of San Diego's coastline. It just highlights the need for, you know, to work with and collaborate across not just agencies, but different nations as well. Yeah, definitely. Um Okay, so I want to kind of shift gears here. I feel like I could probably talk about stormwater runoff in San Diego for a long time. Um, Anyways, I want to shift gears to actually start talking about the global aquarium trade. Um, And that's something that you're much more focused on now. So this past summer, you were able to, again, with Nat Geo and a team of other people, actually travel to places like Indonesia and the Philippines in Southeast Asia and investigate the dynamics of the global aquarium trade. So I guess my question for you is, what inspired this curiosity towards the global aquarium trade for you? Yeah, it's kind of a funny roundabout way that I came to be interested in in the aquarium fish trade. And actually, the interest in the um, global supply chain of the aquarium trade came about from one of the teammates that we had working on this project So he actually was an aquarium hobbyist from a very young age. He grew up in Colorado Springs, so not very close to an ocean. And he had an aquarium basically his entire um, younger life. And that is what he then assigned his interest in the ocean to. So he was able to make a connection with the ocean through these aquariums he had over the years. And he actually then majored in marine biology once he made it to undergrad. So Um, That was sort of the impetus for looking into how these fish end up in people's homes. The project was also really timely because of the release of Finding Dory, the sequel to Finding Nemo. And there was a fair bit of media around the movie because conservationists were concerned that Finding Nemo had spiked sales in clownfish and that 
this new movie would spike sales in the blue tang, which is what Dory is. And at the time of the release of the movie, there's no way to raise blue tangs in captivity, whereas um, clownfish there, they can be raised in captivity and are fairly frequently. So there was concern that the blue tang, the wild blue tang population would be completely depleted by this uptick in interest in the species because people find Dory lovable. So it was a really interesting story with this media connection and then with our teammate Caleb's experience with the aquarium, with having aquariums on the hobbyist side of things, um, we were really excited to kind of explore this whole, this whole world about which I knew very, very little. I didn't, really didn't know anything of where these fish came from. Um, and I, I'd say that's probably true of, you know, 99% of the public, at least in the United States. Yeah. And so during that time that you spent in Southeast Asia thus far doing this kind of investigative research, what did you spend most of your time doing and investigating there? Yeah, it was kind of hard to figure out how to hone in uh, to get some tractable investigative work going because it is so big. So there's over 45 countries involved in the trade and the trade itself is growing. It, it had a slump during the recession, but it's it's now picked up steam again. And as the middle class around the globe, especially in China, continues to expand, um, the sales of aquarium fish are also increasing. Um, so the latest estimate that I'm aware of has the trade valued um, at between seven and fifteen billion dollars a year, and that includes all of the equipment associated with the trade. It is quite a big trade that, that isn't as much in the mainstream of conservation organizations paying attention to um, and whatnot. So because it involves so many different countries, um, we were trying to figure out how we could hone in. So the first thing we learned just from the literature is that actually about 87% of the fish are harvested from the Philippines and Indonesia, um, which isn't surprising because that they're part of this region that's been termed the Coral Triangle and been called the Amazon of the oceans uh, because of its high marine biodiversity. So it makes sense that that's where a lot of the fish are coming from. So that's where we decided to really focus our efforts. And so then once we honed in on those countries, we just started to try to establish relationships with um, get in touch with exporters from the country because they're sort of the last stand before they um, before the fish exit the country. And then through the exporters, we were able to then get in touch with their middlemen, the secondary middleman, and then finally the actual harvesters who are collecting the fish. So I've actually had the opportunity to go to Indonesia, and I think a pretty similar part of Indonesia that you were doing some of this investigative research in. And I had the opportunity to witness some harvesters harvesting not just blue tangs but you know many species of popular aquarium fish for this trade and I wasn't doing any research on it I just was able to observe it during my time there and it's it's a really complex situation just from my very brief interaction with it it seemed very complex in terms of how they're catching it how that's affecting the fish how that's affecting the people that are actually catching it how that's affecting the economy of the place that they're living, all these sorts of things. So what surprised you most when you were able to actually, you know, make that connection with these people that are actually collecting these fish that are, you know, after many hands and many dollars and many miles ending up in people's homes, for instance, in the United States? 
So once we finally got to connect with the harvesters themselves, it was pretty interesting the diversity of situations that they um, that they lived in, the diversity of techniques they used to harvest the fish, um, and kind of the relative percent of income that harvesting those fish represented. So in the Philippines, uh, there were kind of seasonal harvesters that were in a particular part of the country to harvest blue tangs for a short part of the year. And then they would move down to their, you know, their homes where they were from um, the rest of the year. Um, and the harvesters that we met in central Sulawesi, they're a really good example of how complex of a system they're involved in. They're actually part of an indigenous group known as the Sama Bajau, uh, who are traditionally nomadic and have been have been termed often the sea nomads or a more pejorative term, the sea gypsies, because up until recent decades, they had no permanent residence and they roamed around with their nuclear families in boats. And they kind of they had somewhat defined of territories out at sea, uh, but didn't have their own land with permanent residence. And that changed as the government wanted to have a better hold on the population and sort of forced, in some cases, um, the populations to settle. And I think the adjustment, and this is what I'll be looking at more with my thesis work, but I think the adjustment to being in permanent residences is a really interesting system to look at to understand how they've evolved systems to manage this, these common pool resources, such as the aquarium fish, without now having the ability to kind of move on to a new area once, you know, to allow the resource to replenish. So, so the, the fishers that I was with were actually not using cyanide. So that's one of the big issues with the aquarium trade. Um, in the 70s and early 80s, cyanide became really popular to use. So they the middlemen would, would supply the fishers with the cyanide and request that they use it because they could stun a lot more fish than they could just capture um, using normal methods. But with the fishers that we were with, they, didn't, they actually didn't use cyanide, and they, they were very proficient in using the more sustainable methods. In this case, they were using small barrier nets that they would wrap around a coral head um, and then kind of flush the fish into the net um, and capture it that way. And it was a significant for these fishers, um, sp specifically I was with a fisher named Rostin and um, he had two little little boys um, and his wife and this was their main source of income. Um, so I was surprised by that because the other fishers we had met, it wasn't necessarily their, their primary source of income, it was sort of an additional source. Um, but they really, um, Rostin and his family really depended on this income for their their livelihoods. Your um currently in a PhD program, like you just kind of mentioned with your thesis work at Stanford in a program on marine conservation and marine socioecology. And so you're going to be diving into the complexities surrounding these harvesters that are collecting these aquarium fish off of the reefs in these types of regions and really diving into that more. And from my understanding, with your research thus far, you're not saying we should just shut down the aquarium trade. You know, we shouldn't be harvesting any more fish and sending them to any more tanks, which is what many conservationists say, and, and really which is like the simple thing to say, right? Um, from my understanding, you're not saying that. You're saying something different. So can you kind of describe to listeners what it is that you're saying that's different from just let's stop the aquarium trade? Yeah, 
My my team and I definitely found that when we were exploring, you know, kind of the different steps of the trade, that there really was some value in in having these fish in in aquariums. And I think that's I think that really comes down to a personal belief as well of whether or not you know there should be animals in captivity at all. I respect anyone's opinion who feels that way. But I definitely think that with the right species who are more territorial, they don't need as, as big of areas um, in the wild. They don't use as big of areas um, for their breeding and feeding. Those species of fish do well in captivity. Um, and that if they're well taken care of, they can provide really wonderful educational tools and can connect people to the marine realm when they might not otherwise be able to, which you know is what happened with, with Caleb, our teammate. So I think there is space for it, um, but it can be done really well and it can be done really poorly. And when it's done really poorly, it isn't good for the fish, of course, but it also isn't good for the people who harvest the fish because, you know, cyanide and those those products are really bad for human health. Um, and of course, it's really bad for the ecosystem as well. So one of the exporters we um, documented and interviewed and kind of got a sense of the system he uses, he is working to ensure that all of his harvesters are net trained rather than using cyanide. And he ensures that by rather than working through middlemen, actually directly having a relationship with the harvesters themselves. I think that's a really, a really great model. I think he's still working to understand um, how to expand that because to supply the trade, there's thousands of fish coming through um, the exporters. So it, it's a, it definitely takes more commitment to build those relationships directly with the fishers themselves. Um, but I think that if we keep building those sorts of models as far as how the, the trade itself is structured, um, that that will be a really important way to keep the trade sustainable, ensure that the fish themselves are not being overharvested. Um, and that's something that really needs to be looked at. There's really little data around how many fish are actually harvested from the ocean. Um, there's, there is data about how many fish are exported, but that is after, you know, a lot of fish have already died through the supply chain. So that's part of what my thesis will look at as well is collecting data around the actual numbers being harvested and the mortality rate. Um, so there's a lot that we really need to understand better in order to streamline the trade and ensure, you know, a less of a loss of life um, and that the harvesters are being treated well and compensated appropriately for the hard work that they do. Yeah. And would you say also that um, for any um, listeners out there that are wanting to get fish for an aquarium or something like that, that they should look to research like yours to really try to better understand the system and maybe go with suppliers like the one in the Philippines you mentioned that, you know, is training not to use cyanide, but to use, you know, these nets and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the Marine Aquarium Council tried to start a certification program so that consumers would know which uh, retail stores were, were, were sourcing fish from these more sustainable exporters it's had some hiccups and it had, it didn't catch on the way they were hoping it would. They were hoping it would be parallel to the MSC certification, um, for food fish. And so they're still working to grow that. And I think the more that hobbyists or anyone interested in starting their own aquarium goes into stores and requests that 
that they know the fish were harvested sustainably, that the, there will be more motivation for the, the importers and the retailers to really um, stick to their guns with sourcing sustainable fish. That's great. Well, I definitely wish you all the best of luck with your PhD research at Stanford. And I think that, you know, knowing your track record, you're going to make some really great discoveries and get that to the public to, to really try to help the world better understand where these fish are just kind of, you know, right now seemingly miraculously coming from, right? So I want to ask you one last question to wrap up our interview. Like I mentioned in the intro, you were recently honored as one of National Geographic's 2017 Adventurers of the Year, which is an amazing honor. And again, noting on your relationship with Nat Geo. So what I want to ask you is, what does adventure mean to you? I think that there's been this notion of adventure that it's just about or that it's kind of been limited to exploring new new spaces or um, you know reaching the farthest edges of the globe um, where no one's ever been. And I think that all of that sort of exploration uh, is really important and it's really interesting and I, I love that people, are willing to push the boundaries in that way. But I definitely do think that there's other types of adventure that might not be as flashy, but are as important. And I think that that for me, I've found that space um, within research and sort of pushing the boundaries of different fields of research um, and, and areas of knowledge and kind of having my own adventure with within that realm um, and I think the other thing that's important to remember is that we don't need to go to these crazy far flung, flung places um, to have adventures and that kind of looping back to this idea of curiosity that if we carry that with us wherever we are, that there really is space for adventure, you know, even in our own, literally our own backyard. I think that adventure can come in so many different forms and that it really is just in, in this essence of, of curiosity of how the world, world works. That's awesome. I love those thoughts. And I think that hopefully for listeners, you are inspired as inspired as I am by Shannon's, you know, meaning of adventure and all that she's putting into her adventures as a scientist, photojournalist and conservationist. So listeners, if you have been inspired by what Shannon and I have talked about today and all the amazing things that she does, I will be linking to her Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook when I post this podcast episode. You can find her on Twitter and Facebook at S3Oceans, and I'll also link to her Instagram account, at, and you can find her there at Shannon Switzer Swanson. So I'll be linking to all of that when I post this episode so you guys can message her, reach out to her, and you know tell her she's amazing or collaborate with her ask her questions or whatever you want to do so shannon i want to thank you so much for all of the positive change that you're creating for the ocean it really is incredible what you have accomplished in your few years on the planet and i also want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed talking with you thank you so much allison it's been really fun you just heard Shannon Switzer Swanson, ocean scientist, photojournalist, and conservationist, recently honored as one of National Geographic's 2017 Adventurers of the Year. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at oceanallison.com and tune in to the next episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.